You'll join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, this morning we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 in our ongoing series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 981. The title of our sermon this morning is Dogs and Evildoers. And the keywords for worshipers in training are flesh, confidence, and dogs. In 2010, there was a book review uh, that was published in the New York Times covering several different books that addressed the issue of happiness. And the review was called The Wrap of Happiness. Here's how the article begins. It says, smart people often talk trash about happiness and worse than trash about books on happiness. And they have been doing so for centuries, just as long as other people have been pursuing happiness and writing books about it. The fashion is to bemoan happiness studies and positive psychology as being the work not of the devil, but of morons. No mockery in this world ever sounds to me so hollow as that of being told to cultivate happiness, Charlotte Bronte wrote in 1853. What does such advice mean? Happiness is not a potato to be planted in mold and tilled with manure. Now, to be honest, I think part of Charlotte Bronte's problem was that she was probably reading her and her sister's books. That's more akin to torture than happiness as far as I'm concerned. Nevertheless, is she right? The author continues... It is true that ever since Americans began turning away from Calvinism, the country has been a breeding ground for good news, for the selling of paths to contentment. The quick-witted and genteel opportunism of Mary Baker Eddy, the medicine-free healing mantras of Christian science begat Norman Vincent Peale's power of positive thinking, and every other think-your-way-to-health-and-or-happiness coach from Father Divine to Suzanne Summers to Deepak Chopra. With questions like, are you tired of being a victim? Do you feel stuck? Is something missing? Is life passing you by? There have been a lot of people giving happiness, if not a bad name, then certainly a moist, oily, spray-on tan with a side of cash kind of name. And so what she's saying is, if you really want a peace-filled life, don't pursue happiness. Because anything you get happiness from will not last no matter what it is, will in the end disappoint you. The only way to find peace is to not try to be happy. Perhaps you know something of what this is like on a small scale. All growing up, I lived in Colorado. I was a big fan of the Denver Nuggets, and they were terrible. I myself played on the C team of basketball, uh, but I didn't actually play. I sat on the bench on the C team. My high school soccer team, we were supposed to win the state finals my senior year, and we got knocked out the first round of the playoffs. I play golf. That's a constant game of frustration and disappointment. Maybe your favorite sports team or, or player keeps breaking your heart. Whatever it is for you, all of us have experienced trying to find our happiness in something, and it just disappoints us in the end. Our hearts are longing for something, and they're like this, these big vacuum pumps. They get attached to something. 
If you've ever gotten your vacuum hose stuck, to, stuck on like the fringes of a, of a rug or something, it sucks that thing and it tries to pull it in, but it never can. But it's stuck there and to get it, you have to turn it off and pull it out. It's a big mess. But it never takes in what it's pulling on. And that's, that's our hearts. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of effort. And in the end, it amounts to nothing. And so we, we turn to a lot of things and we say, well, this is going to make me happy, but we know in the end it won't. So then you might say, okay, for once in her life, Charlotte Bronte wrote something worth reading. I'll just stop going after happiness altogether. But one of the things that we can often mix up is meanings. And a lot of people have a wrong understanding of what the Bible calls joy because in our culture, we've been so fixed on the issue of happiness. They're not the same thing. And that's really important for us to understand and to know because what we're going to see in our text this morning is that this is one of the many places in Scripture where we're actually commanded by God in His Word to find joy. We're called to pursue it. And what we learn is the uniqueness of Christian joy that stands apart from the world's concept of happiness. Christian joy is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and a right understanding of the gospel. And so we transition now from Paul's argument in his letter to the Philippian church in chapters 1 and 2 with regard to how we are working and striving together in the church and loving one another and dying to ourselves. And now we see a command and we see a warning and we see some important instruction as to how we are to go about this life in the church together. So let's read beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Well, we know the Apostle Paul is a great preacher because he starts with the word finally, even though he has several more chapters to go until he finishes the letter. Now, more literally, what he's saying here is probably not the word finally. It's a transitional phrase. He's saying, it's like our saying, so then, or anyway, and we go on with our story. He's getting things started on a different track, so he's offering some transitional phraseology here. He's not saying in conclusion. What Paul is actually doing here is picking up this theme of rejoicing. And thus far in our letter, it has been this transitional hinge as we've moved from sort of one bit of instruction to another. In chapter 1, you'll recall, in verse 18, he wrote, What then? Once that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So that was the first instance of this. And then in chapter 2, in verses 17 and 18, he wrote, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
And so there he insists that he's willing and, and offering up his body as a kind of drink offering, poured out of this, this self-sacrifice. He's glad and he rejoices with all of them. He wants them to rejoice with him. We also saw this about his friends and his ministry partners. We saw Timothy and Epaphroditus who have similarly displayed their willingness to pour themselves out, to suffer for the sake of others, to die to themselves. A stanch which brings joy to those who minister. And so we transition again in this section now where where Paul is going to address some possible doctrinal problems with the church in Philippi, things that they might face. And he begins with something that sounds like, so then, my brothers, as a result of all that I've said, rejoice in the Lord. And as we look at these verses this morning, there's at least uh, three important things for us to consider. The first one in verse 1 is that no matter what our circumstances, Christians have reason to rejoice in the Lord. There are plenty of books and websites and self-help programs that promise certain methods and keys to actual lasting happiness. All of them generally come down to emphasizing five things. There's five components to lasting happiness, according to all of them. One is to have all of the basics. Food, shelter, good health, safety. Two, get enough sleep. Three, make sure all of your relationships that you have matter to you and get rid of the ones that don't. Four, take compassionate care of yourself and others. And five, make sure that your work is interesting and engaging to you. Now, hopefully you hear all of this and you say, well, of course, if all of that is in place, you have some kind of earthly happiness. But the problem is, nobody has all five of those things together all at the same time. It's a ridiculous notion. But you see, the world believes that happiness is getting all of our circumstances aligned in the right way, at the right place, at the right time. And once our circumstances are right, then everything's going to fall in place, everything will be favorable, and then we will be happy. And an honest person will look at all of this and say, that's never going to happen. Therefore, we spend our lives striving after this. Over the summer, I've been reading... Uh, Sigmund Freud for a project I'm working on. I came across a 1930 treatise he wrote. It's called Civilization and Its Discontents. And in that work, Freud came to this conclusion that happiness is the avoidance of suffering and the experience of the maximum amount of pleasure. In the end, Freud was basically a hedonist. I mean, this is supposed to be some high-level philosophical, psychological stuff, but it's the same amazing principle that he came up with that has been talked about for centuries before. It's just that it's not often talked about in such raw form. It's usually fancied up with other language. But at the end of the day, it all amounts to the same thing, and it's easy to write a book about these things and talk about these things, but everyone inherently knows that it doesn't actually exist. So is everyone doomed to unhappiness? Well, if happiness is our aim, then yes. Yes. Because you will never have a life that avoids suffering and maximizes pleasure. It doesn't exist. But you see the uniqueness of Christianity. The uniqueness of what the Apostle Paul is addressing here is something quite different from happiness. And in fact, it actually doesn't involve our circumstances at all. 
You know, in Romans chapter 5, Paul actually writes that Christians are to rejoice in suffering. Now, he's not encouraging us to rejoice because we are suffering. That's masochism. That's not his point. He says we rejoice because when, when we face suffering, when we experience suffering, we know what it's going to bring about. It's going to bring about endurance and perseverance and character, and that all leads to hope, which leads to future glory. And so even though your world may be falling apart all around you in terms of your circumstances, Paul is reminding us that we can actually have joy and even grow as Christians in the midst of all of it. Why? Because while worldly happiness goes away and bad things will happen, that we don't base our joy on our circumstances. Christian joy grows stronger because it's rooted in something entirely different than our circumstances. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. Rejoice in what or whom? He says rejoice in the Lord. And in many ways, I think it's probably best that Christians sort of part with the concept of happiness altogether because it doesn't actually communicate what we experience in life. Christian joy is entirely different. It's not rooted in the favorability of what's going on in the moment. It's rooted in the Lord. And in many ways, Christian joy comes because of trials, not in the avoidance of them. Think of what trials do. What is God's intention through our trials? To bring us closer to the source of joy, right? Think of it this way. Most of us probably, at least at some point, we have children, have told them that they can't eat candy before they have their meal. It's going to ruin their appetite. They're not going to eat their meal, right? The sugar makes, uh, makes them feel like they're full and that they don't need all the other nutrients. It makes them think that they're not hungry anymore. But when the sugar wears off, they're hungry and they go on a spree of eating everything around. All of us have experienced that at some point, right? It drives us to feast, Now, as Christians, if we're honest, we have to admit that we're spending too much time snacking on the sugar that the world keeps putting in front of us, and it just makes us, it it sort of masks what we really need. But when it wears off and we're faced with trials on every side, what do we do? Where do we go? Well, we need to feast, and God intends for all those trials around us to drive us to feast on Him, to feast on the Lord. Instead of the world. That's what Paul's getting at. Look, there are all kinds of things around you that promise you happiness, and none of them, not a single one of them, works. Now, in the moment, for sure, for a day, maybe for a week, fine. But in the end, what is left? God puts trials in our lives for our joy. And that seems very paradoxical. But those trials drive us to the Lord. Because when the sugar goes away, when the candy goes away, we're forced to feast on what the soul actually needs. When things go bad, the Christian is driven to Christ to to develop strength and true joy that never goes away regardless of the circumstances. In, In fact, all of us know Christians who have shown us by their lives that the more they face trials, the deeper and more fulfilling their joy in Christ. 
So our rejoicing should be in the Lord because the Lord himself is both the occasion and source of our joy. And look what else Paul writes here in verse 1. He says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What are the same things he's referring to here? Well, they are Paul's regular exhortations that we've seen throughout the letter already to rejoice during affliction. The references to rejoicing that we've already mentioned. We'll see one more when we get to chapter 4. In other words, Paul doesn't mind repeating the same exhortation to rejoice. It's not a trouble for him to do so. And it's safe for the Philippians to hear this exhortation again because it is a safeguard. It is a reminder to them. It keeps them from being lured away by the sugar that's being put in front of them. In other words, Paul is pointing out that joy in the Lord is inherently safe. And it keeps us from experiencing a life of anxiety and depression and fear. He's emphasizing the same thing as Nehemiah does in chapter 8 and verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy in the Lord is strengthening despite what's going on all around you. There is safety found when we have joy in the Lord. Matthew Henry wrote, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of the taste of those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. So we see why Paul is so willing to urge the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Not to seek happiness, but to look to Christ. To rest in Christ. To have faith in Christ. To trust in His his finished, final work on their behalf so that no matter what may come to them, they can know that He loves them, that He takes care of them, that He is with them now and always And the best He has for them isn't this momentary time of happiness here on this earth, but it is everlastingly with Him. Friend, are you safe in the strength of the joy of the Lord or are you in danger? Are you seeking happiness when in reality what you really need in your life is joy in Christ? Because the the seeking after happiness is a treadmill. You will never go anywhere. You're just going to be tired in the end. Happiness is fleeting, but joy in the Lord is everlasting. And Jesus offers you a life of everlasting joy. By faith, we can trust that His work in fulfilling the law of God to perfection, in dying a sinner's death on the cross that we all deserve, descending to the grave and death and being raised the third day again that we might have life everlasting. And He promises us that if we come to Him by faith, trusting in all that He has done on our behalf, putting all of our hope in Him, that He will give us life everlasting. Life, not easy life. Not happy life, but joy-filled life. Joy-filled content life that never, ever ends. And it's always with Him. Well, Paul reminds the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And he does that because he's about to get to some serious business about what's coming for every faithful church and every faithful believer. 
because there are false teachers out there and because our own tendency in our own hearts is to pervert the truth. So our second point this morning in verse 2, we see that Paul shows us that Christians must be alert to identify every perversion of the gospel. Look again at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, there's no real indication why Paul's addressing this specifically with the Philippians, talking about the enemies of the gospel here. He's providing a warning to the church. But it's no secret that the specific thing he's going after here is what he's addressed in several of his other letters and all throughout his ministry. So it's not completely out of nowhere. What's very likely is that Paul is providing a warning to the church based on what he's seeing going on in the other churches knowing it's coming for them, too, if it hasn't already arrived. So who are these dogs and these evildoers and these mutilators of the flesh he's talking about? Based on the context, it's likely that they were the same people that the Galatians were dealing with. But the Galatians had gone down the road further. They had gone down the road of listening to them and following them and believing them. And you'll remember that in Galatians, Paul very forcefully calls them out and expressed great surprise at their being bewitched by the false teaching. They were, in the most basic form, believing a gospel of works righteousness. And Paul was concerned that this not get into the church at Philippi. He's protecting them with a warning. In Galatia, remember a group of false teachers are called the Judaizers. They'd infiltrated the church and they began teaching that salvation was, in fact, not by grace through faith apart from works of the law, but salvation was by the grace of Jesus Christ plus works of the law. And furthermore, that, that keeping one salvation by, was by works of the law as well. So I'm saved by grace and works and I stay saved by works. And so for the Judaizers, believing in Jesus as the Messiah was just the truer, purer form of Judaism. But it wasn't a distinct religion apart from Judaism. They had all been circumcised as infants. They practiced kosher dietary laws and rules and rituals of purity outlined in rabbinic tradition and in the law of Moses. They worship at the temple of Jerusalem until its destruction in 70 AD. And in the synagogues, they scattered throughout the Roman world on the Jewish Sabbath they met instead of on the Lord's Day. And so they were saying, yes, believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you have to follow Judaism as well or you're not truly converted. And next week, we're going to see Paul go after all of these traditions more specifically. But here he offers a very strong warning. These people are dogs. They mean evil. Why? Why such strong language here? Well, here's the reality. Now, let's be honest. If Paul were alive today and he posted this on Twitter, he'd be mobbed immediately and called a racist and a bigot and an intolerant and hateful person because of his language. Because, of course, we can't hurt people's feelings. So instead of saying, hey, stop right now, do not take another step, or you're going to go off the side of the cliff and die, we're supposed to say something like, excuse me, sir, ma'am, Zed, 
please forgive my intrusion into your safe space, but I did want to let you know that I feel like maybe you, like, won't be happy about the results if you keep going in this direction because, like, the road ends. But I'm not judging you. I mean, like, if you believe the road is still there, that's your truth, and I can't judge that. But you may not want to do that. No, Paul had none of that. He would be banned from Twitter, Facebook, YouTube in a Corinthian minute. But he, he doesn't mince words here at all, does he? He calls them dogs and evildoers. Why such strong, unwoke language from the Apostle? Because these are fierce enemies of Christ who are distorting the Gospel. Remember in the book of Galatians, Paul wrote in chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven were to preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. There are no safe spaces in Paul's world. Here in Philippians, he actually has these three things he says in verse 2. They're all this, they're alliterated insults. You don't pick up on that without the, the original language, but they're all alliterated. And he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. He's being very sarcastic. Here's what each of them are. The dogs, first century Israelites, they didn't have pets. Dogs were dirty, coyote-like scavengers who fed on roadkill and garbage. Basically, exactly how the rest of the world thinks about dogs today. For the readers of Paul's letter, there's no doubt that the dogs were vivid images of something being unclean. So for the Jews, the dog was a perfect metaphor for those who did not keep Israel's dietary laws. It was a powerful metaphor for the Gentiles and backslidden Jews. But here in Philippians, by warning Christians, look out for the dogs, Paul's doing a reversal here. He's flipping the script. He's he's charging that the law-keeping, the law-insisting Judaizers, they were the unclean dogs who stood outside of all of the covenant blessings. Then he calls them evildoers. Again, the Judaizers are a people who claim to be doing all of the works of the law. It was a sort of holier-than-thou kind of slogan that was used by the Judaizers to distinguish Jew from Gentile or the observant Jew from the non-observant Jew. So when Paul calls them evildoers, he's saying rather than doing the works of the law, they were literally working evil. In other words, the harder they worked at the law, the more they were working evil, and therefore they were spiritual Gentiles. They were dogs. He's just punching them in the gut. And third, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Now again, this is a little tough language-wise, but this is probably the most powerful of all of his punches because mutilate is a sarcastic play on the word for circumcise. 
It's the same word that's used in 1 Kings to talk about self-mutilation of the prophets of Baal. Now you can think what he's comparing them to when you draw that comparison. But the big thing here is that circumcision above everything else for the Judaizers was their greatest source of pride. It's how they identified themselves most noticeably, physically. But Paul calls it mutilation, and it's implying that to have any hope in their mutilated flesh is to show that they are not God's people at all. And so he slaps them with their own words and their own slogans, and these are going to stick in their minds undoubtedly. Why? Because it's a serious, deadly thing to add anything, any legalistic requirements to the gospel of God's grace. Adding anything to the gospel makes one a dog, a worker of evil, or mutilator of the flesh. Beware of those who preach such things. Well, we see from here our third and final point this morning in verse 3, that true Christians trust in Christ and not in themselves. Again, verse 3, Paul writes, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we are not mutilators of the flesh. This isn't an outward thing. We are the true, we are the real circumcision because our hearts have been circumcised. We are the true people of God, not because of something that has happened physically, outwardly, but because of what God has done to us inwardly. We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Jesus Christ, and we stand apart from those who have confidence in the flesh. He's drawing very sharp lines of distinction between a works righteousness and gospel righteousness, between gospel faithfulness and self-righteousness. When it comes to the gospel, you can't have a view over here that's kind of close, and another view over here that's also kind of close, but a little bit different. There's only one gospel. And if, that, and if it's not that gospel that we're trusting in, it's no gospel at all. The Judaizers were distorting the gospel of Christ. They're reversing the gospel. In, in Galatians, Paul is literally saying that they're turning the gospel inside out. The Judaizers are trying to put works in the midst of something that God has done and given to us by grace alone. And to take what only God can do on the inside and make it your right before Him and putting all the requirements on the outside is something you can do, you're distorting the gospel. It turns away from only God can do this to now I can do this. And everything is backwards. They're trusting things in the reverse order. God has done a work in and through Jesus Christ on our behalf. And as a result of that, we are who we are, and we've received what we've received, and now we're made able to do good works. Not to earn, not to keep our salvation, but because we willingly, thankfully, and joyfully serve and glorify God and love our neighbors. So the question we have to ask about our gospel is, does God love us? And as a result of His loving and saving us, we love Him and live according to His Word? Is that our gospel? Or 
Do we do good works, come to God, give ourselves to Him in love, promise to lead a good life, and as a result of that, then God loves us? There's a huge difference. Am I doing what I'm doing as a Christian because God loved me first, or because I loved Him and He responded? Martin Luther deals with this. He writes, Where the righteousness of the law rules, there the righteousness of grace cannot rule. And where the righteousness of grace reigns, the righteousness of law cannot reign. One of them must give way to the other. If you cannot believe that God will forgive your sins for Christ's sake, He who was sent into the world to be our high priest, how then will you believe that He will forgive you through the works of the law that you could never perform, or through your own works, which, as you must be obliged to confess, cannot prevail against God's judgment? In other words, if you can't settle on the fact that God loves you, and has saved you because of what Christ has done on your behalf? How in the world are you ever going to be loved and forgiven based on anything you can do? Christ is infinitely, infinitely greater than you and I will ever be. And since God's standard is absolute perfection in accordance with His holy, perfect law, God either loves us despite ourselves and accepts us and counts us as righteous because of what Christ has accomplished as a substitute standing in our place, or we have to present our own works, which all fall short of God's standard, and leave us totally without hope because we are, in the words of Jesus himself, condemned already. There are no alternatives to this. There is no sort of middle ground. It's Christ's righteousness or it's my righteousness that I must live upon. These are our options. Either I'm depending on a circumcised heart or I'm depending on circumcised flesh, but I can't depend on both. Now, it's really easy for Christians to hear all of this and to say amen, and we should. We can get really excited about this. It's true. It's true that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law, and we should be so grateful for that and remind ourselves of that. However, I am still a man living in this world and in this flesh, so there's a lot of who I am that reflects something other than my depending solely upon the righteousness of Christ. In fact, if your life is anything like mine, you will admit that we are sometimes a lot more like the Judaizers that we want, than we want to be or want to admit. My tendency is to live upon my own finite goodness and finite wisdom and my own good works instead of living upon the infinite goodness and wisdom and love and kindness of God. Here's where our rejoicing in Christ and standing upon the work of Christ and not our own come together. When you are working to be happy... What happens is your goal and its, its determination is based on circumstances. And there will be a time when you do things that in the end you're going to assume that God owes you something for because you're depending on works. And when you don't get it, Because life is real and life is tough sometimes, you're going to get angry and you're going to retreat further into your own works and your own righteousness instead of turning and running more faithfully to God. 
And when we determine life based on our circumstances and our pursuit of happiness, when we look for purpose and meaning and worth based on our circumstances, we don't stop to remember that my life and my worth and my acceptance before God isn't based upon my righteousness and my works. When I'm living upon circumstances, what I'm saying, what really matters to me is what others think about me. What I'm saying really matters is if others accept me and think I have it all together. And if that's the case, then surely everyone else will too. And we all play that game. Imagine if you're standing on the edge of a massive cliff that falls down a thousand feet to the bottom of a valley and there's a cliff on the other side that you have to get to and uh, the other side, we'll call, that, uh, we'll call the side you're on who you are and the other side who you must be. Our tendency is to look across. It's a thousand feet down and a thousand feet across and we say, I think I can make it. So we back up And we get a long pull, and we try to pole vault ourselves across the chasm. And so we are engaging in suicidal pole vaulting. And we fall down to the bottom. And once we get down in the valley, we're on our backs, and all we can do is look up and realize, I can't do it. I cannot do it. And it's only when we're at the bottom looking up at all of our failed efforts that we're most able and most ready to hear, you cannot do this on your own. Your efforts are not going to get you there. And so we find our way back up. Now, for some reason, we eventually find ourselves picking up the pole again. The very next day, our lives are like this long episode of Roadrunner and Coyote, We're the coyote. If you don't know that reference, you miss the greatest cartoon in human history. But it's not until we say, who I must be is not achievable, but who Christ is for me is enough, and so I can trust in Him. Instead of attempting to be my own person and earn my own way and work my own works, it's not until we do that that we've truly embraced what Christ has given us in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, works righteousness is a lie. And it's not just a lie. Paul reminds us it's a damning lie. We need the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ if we are to live. And so we must rejoice in the Lord. Find true joy in Christ. Not looking for fake versions of a better self through the pursuit of earthly happiness. And in doing so, we need to be on our lookout for dogs and evildoers who seek to lead us astray by a false gospel of self-help and works righteousness and prosperity. And we must cling faithfully to the true gospel of Christ, depending not on our works, depending not on our circumstances, but resting in and finding all of our freedom and all of our hope in the finished faithful work of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything that we might live. That's the truth that Paul points us to. That's the truth that all of Scripture points us to, and that is the only truth that will give us life everlasting. Amen.